It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're looking at building cells from the bottom up. And we'll be hearing from a breakthrough prize winner. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, reporter Jeff Marsh has been learning about creating synthetic cells. Biologists have been tweaking cells for decades, knocking out, adding, editing genes, adding compounds, removing compounds, essentially taking a top-down approach, starting with the living system in all its complexity and tinkering with it to figure out how it all works. Biology is complicated, so it makes sense that scientists have taken this top-down approach, and it's served us well, helping us understand the inner workings of cells and create groundbreaking therapies. But more recently, research groups around the world have begun to take a bottom-up approach. Starting from scratch, their aim is to rebuild living systems with a precise knowledge of the individual components. I wanted to talk to a few scientists on the front lines of this biology engineering, and I started with Dan Fletcher, a professor at UC Berkeley in the US. The basic idea is that from bottom up, we can work with components that we understand. So this is where the opportunity to design systems in predictable ways comes. To put it crudely, you're trying to make cells. We're trying to make uh, systems that behave like cells. I think the idea of a synthetic cell is um, we're abstracting parts of the cell that we might want to use and seeing if we can build those in controlled ways. What are the technical challenges of this type of engineering biology? Because cells, I don't know, I've seen them down the microscope, they just look quite simple, <laughs> simple and small and like little beans. So what's the challenge? <laughs> Uh, it's much easier to take things apart than to put them back together. And I think one of the biggest barriers is developing technologies that let us reassemble um, minimal parts of cells into synthetic cell-like structures. And another part of the challenge um, is to incorporate a genome that can continue to produce proteins and regulate the function of the synthetic system. So it's almost a two-part process. 
We'll come back to creating synthetic genomes in a moment, but as far as making the physical cell structure goes, the 3D membranes made of a lipid bilayer, it turns out that making this isn't necessarily that difficult. Here's the University of Minnesota's Kate Adamala explaining how they make these so-called liposomes. Um, essentially the same way you make soap bubbles. If you ever played that game where you have dish soap and you have a little loop and you blow into that loop and you end up with a soap bubble, that's how we make liposomes basically. They essentially are soap bubbles. I just got the most fantastic imagery in my head of how fun your lab must be. <laughs> yeah, our bubbles are smaller. What are the remaining technical challenges to how we create synthetic cell membranes and compartmentalize stuff? Depending on how do you reconstitute the membrane, what kind of lipids you use, what kind of protein you use, you end up with a membrane with very different properties. But also, we need to not only figure out what kind of composition we need, but how to precisely control that composition using the cell's own metabolism. Because when we're building a cell, we want that cell to be able to eventually self-replicate and self-sustain everything inside it, including the membrane. So, for example, if we decide that we need 14 different lipids at very specific ratios, then we need to find a way for the metabolism of a synthetic cell to make those lipids at those very specific ratios to maintain the composition of the membrane over the life cycle of that synthetic cell. Kate also told me that to get close to a real-life cell, these membranes would also need to be studied with a complicated array of proteins and sugars that perform a multitude of functions. Also, she said it's surprisingly difficult to program a cell to know how big to grow. In live cells, of course, a lot of these instructions ultimately come from the DNA within the cell, and introducing a genome to a synthetic cell comes with its own challenges. Synthetic genomics could be argued to be more top-down than bottom-up because ultimately they are using genes that exist in nature rather than creating them totally from scratch. But the truth seems to be that it's somewhere in between. Scientists like John Glass at the Craig Venter Institute in the US recently created an organism with what they deemed to be the bare minimum set of genes required for life. Here's John. In 2016, we produced an organism that its genome encoded only 473 genes. Now, to our astonishment, one-third of those genes, we didn't know what they did. And most of those genes are conserved not only in other bacteria, but even in you and me and plants and life all across the planet. So the essential operating system genes, this kernel of life, the functions that cells have to do, there is a whole lot of it that we don't still understand. What you're basically saying is bottom-up biology, I suppose, is going to have to work hand-in-hand -hand with an element of top-down biology um, for synthetic genomics. Sure. Imagine that I have a gene that is absolutely essential, and it, I don't have any idea what it does. And so if I can take an existing organism and remove that gene and see how it affects that existing organism... Now I can incorporate that knowledge into my bottom-up construction of a new genome. So the, the synthetic genomicists are essentially kind of the, you're the mixologists of the synthetic biology world. 
Yeah, I, I guess you could say that. Or the computer programmers, the guys who write the code. So with tools starting to come online for creating synthetic cells and manipulating them to have desired functions, Dan Fletcher, who you heard at the beginning of this piece, thinks it's time the community came together to draw up some shared achievable goals. Here's Dan. I think it makes sense to start the grand challenge of rebuilding a cell with a cell or a synthetic cell that could help us in some way. And so I like the idea of focusing on red blood cells or platelets, uh, things even without a nucleus, that if we could produce them synthetically uh, would have real health implications. We'd be able to provide synthetic blood to people who need it without bleeding people to get it. Having that as a target means that we can both figure out if our skills and our capabilities and our tools and our understanding are sufficient to rebuild a cell, um, while at the same time trying to reach a goal that um, could help people. And looking further afield, I mean, it's perfectly possible that we'll visit Mars in the not-too-distant future. Um, do you reckon that synthetic cells will be coming along with us for the ride? Yes. I'll go out on a limb and say uh, we're going to need them. Uh, we're going to need engineered biological systems to help us overcome uh, the challenges of new environments. We're not going to be able to wait for uh, evolution to build the biological systems needed to better exist on Mars. So uh, let's design them. I'm going to hold you to that. I should I should be alive in 10, 15 years. I'm only 32. Uh, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so. I, won't, I won't return your call if I'm wrong. That was Dan Fletcher speaking to Jeff Marsh. You also heard from Kate Adamala and John Glass. This week, Nature has a special issue on bottom-up biology that includes an editorial, a comment piece, a feature article, and loads more on the subject. Find all of that over at go.nature.com slash bottomupbiology. Later in the show, we'll be finding out about another announcement in the world of open access publishing. That's coming up in the news chat. Before then, though, we're joined in the studio by Ali Jennings, and he's brought this week's research highlights with him. At the earliest stages of star formation, unattached atoms of hydrogen float through space in giant, dark clouds. To make a star, pairs of hydrogen atoms must bond to form hydrogen molecules. However, it's been hard for researchers to actually see this happen. But now, a group have managed it. When they peered into the gloom of three dark clouds, they saw halos of hydrogen atoms hovering over the cloud's cores, slowly being converted to hydrogen molecules. The researchers suggest their findings may help us understand the speed at which stars, planets and galaxies form. To find out more, take a peek at the Astrophysical Journal and you'll be in the dark no more. Now, this next story is not for the squeamish. That is, unless you like the idea of a swarm of tiny corkscrews burrowing into your eyeballs. Thought not. However, right now, if you want to treat the retina, you have to drop drugs onto the front of the eye and wait for them to diffuse through the eyeball, which can diminish their efficacy. Enter the eyeball screws. A team in Germany have created microscopic glass corkscrews coated in iron and covered in a slippery liquid. This structure allows them to twist their way to targeted areas of the retina. 
When the team injected the glass gizmos into a pig's eyeball, the wriggling robots reached the back of the eye in a tenth of the time it would have taken a drug to diffuse there. A result, the authors say, could lead to faster drug delivery with fewer side effects. Worm your way over to Science Advances to read more. Okay, listeners, in reporting, when you hear an event described as the Oscars of X, it's usually a fairly lazy metaphor. So obviously you would never hear that said on the Nature podcast. Why do I get the feeling, Shamali, that you're about to describe something as the Oscars of science? Well, okay, listen, last Sunday was the star-studded breakthrough awards ceremony. It's as close to the Oscars of science as we're going to get. It was hosted by former James Bond actor Pierce Brosnan and featured a performance from Lionel Richie. Okay, so 007, dancing on the ceiling. Okay, just this once, I'll allow an event to be described as the Oscars of science on this podcast. Thank you, Ben. That's very gracious of you. The Breakthrough Prizes recognise researchers making significant scientific advances and are funded by a bunch of tech entrepreneurs. One of the winners in the life sciences category was Angelica Amon, a biologist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US. She was recognised for her work investigating the causes of aneuploidy, that is having the incorrect number of chromosomes in a human cell, and how this can lead to serious health issues. Angelica chatted to reporter Zia Morali about her research and her excitement at finding out she'd won the prize. I was driving in the car with uh, my daughter and I got a phone call from a friend who it turned out was on the committee and so forth. And he says sort of very secretly, can you talk and you, you cannot spill the beans. This is very secretive. So then he told me that I won and I had to be very, very careful to not start screaming and uh being all excited because, of course, my daughter was sitting right next to me and her ears grew larger and larger and larger the more mysterious the conversation went, right? <laughs> so as I understand it, you were investigating the consequences of sort of abnormal numbers of chromosomes. Can you tell us why you were investigating this problem and, and what you discovered? When the process goes wrong and cells end up with the wrong chromosome number, it has profound implications for human health. But uh, we hadn't really asked why. <laughs> and so we decided, you know, I think it's time to really go deeper and trying to understand why things go so badly wrong when chromosomes are missegregated. And basically what we found in a nutshell is, is that when you change the chromosome content of a cell, you change the gene content of the cell, and the processes that normally run all the cellular pathways and run the things that cells do really go havoc. And that really explains how fetuses that have the wrong chromosome number start dying. They just don't develop right anymore. And then finally, I think the big question is, is how these changes in copy number affect cancer. And here, we're still working on this. We're still really facing a puzzle here. Because all our work on how the wrong chromosome number affects normal cells, it, it reduces their fitness, it reduces their proliferative capacity. And that's really at odds with the disease of cancer, which is sort of a disease that's characterized by unrestricted growth and proliferation, right? And so how a condition that has such detrimental effects on normal cells is then exploited by the cancer cells to uh, create a disease that kills you because these cells start proliferating when they shouldn't. That's really the big next challenge that we have to figure out. 
And do you think that winning the prize, um, has that sort of raised the profile of your research? Uh, have I gotten phone calls from pharmaceutical companies? Not so far, but it is my hope that people who are better equipped to translate these basic findings into clinical applications will find our work interesting and worth pursuing. This is an absolutely huge monetary prize, um, three million US dollars. Have you had a chance yet to think about how you might spend it? Obviously, mundane things such as let's pay off the mortgage come to mind. (laughs) But I need to sit down and think a little bit more. I would like to do something uh, useful. It's been a little bit crazy lately. And right now we've caught you just as you're preparing to go to this wonderful breakthrough prize ceremony. I've been to one myself and they are hugely glitzy affairs. You've got sort of Hollywood actors and actresses there. It's going to be hosted by Pierce Brosnan. Um, You know, how are you preparing for that? How is your family preparing for that? It must be tremendously exciting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know... Not my favorite thing to be the center of attention. Um, It's certainly going to be an exciting experience. My children are thrilled. They're very excited to meet um, Orlando Bloom. (laughs) (laughs) We had to spend a lot of money on clothing and makeup. That money better come afterwards. (laughs) So you told us about your kids wanting to meet Orlando Bloom, but who are you excited to meet? I'm excited to meet the founders of the Breakthrough Prize. I think they've done something very special and something very important. They're really trying to put science into the public eye in, in times where sort of the truth and facts are continuously under attack. Everything is fake news. It's a terribly important thing that they are doing. So this prize is in recognition of your work so far, but what are the big questions that still need to be answered? If you want to understand how life works, you need to understand how cells work. Without them, none of us would be here, right? So they're, you know, to a biologist, they're sort of the unit of life. And to me, my greatest passion is to try and figure out how they work. That was Angelica Amon speaking to Zia Morali. Finally then, this week, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Richard Van Norden, Features Editor here at Nature. Uh, Richard, thanks for dropping by. It's a pleasure, Ben. For our first story today, we'll be talking about an announcement from two large science funders, and they are the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And this announcement centres on the publishing of academic papers and Plan S. So before we go any further, Richard, what is Plan S? Plan S is a plan to get all science papers open access by 2020. Now, it's only supported so far by about 13 funding agencies across Europe. So that's the plan. We haven't actually seen how these funding agencies will implement the plan, but the Wellcome Trust has this week announced how it's going to do it. Mm, And I worked at the Wellcome Trust many years ago, and open access was very central to their kind of ethos. How has this changed what, what their plans are? Well, so far, their open access policy allows a little delay before your paper has to be made open. Now, the Wellcome Trust says, nope, from 2020, everything has to be open and free to read immediately. The interesting thing about this is it's the first time we're seeing how someone who's joined up with Plan S is actually saying how they will carry it out. Now, Plan S originally seemed to say that it would forbid its researchers from publishing in, it might be as much as 85% of journals out there right now, 
that don't permit immediate open access publishing under a liberal publishing license in the way that Plan S wanted. So it looked like, oh, researchers could be prevented from publishing in all these journals. Now, with the welcome interpretation, it's a little bit more flexible. Flexible how? Many journals now are published in a hybrid method, which means their subscription, they collect money, they keep most things behind a paywall, but they will make some articles open if they receive payment. But Plan S said that it didn't want scientists to publish in hybrid journals because these journals charge quite a lot for open access. And if lots of journals adopt this model, it's not really impelling a global shift to open access. Now, the way the Welcome has actually implemented Plan S is a little bit more flexible. It's saying now, we won't provide funding for you to make your articles open in a hybrid journal, but if you really want to publish in a hybrid journal, we're not going to stop you, we're not going to bar you if you can find the funds in another way. It's also saying, ah, you can even publish in a subscription journal if the subscription journal will let you make an accepted manuscript available online under a liberal publishing licence instantly. Now, it's still really dissuading authors from publishing with hybrid journals or subscription journals. And there are a lot of subscription journals, including Nature and Science, that are still not currently compliant with what the Wellcome Trust wants. Listeners, it's important to say that Nature's news team is editorially independent of its publisher. What are publishers of journals that could, you know, could be affected by this saying about this decision? Well, the publishers are anxious because many of them don't see how to switch their business models. And when I asked them to respond to this latest announcement, most of them, frankly, said not very much. They said, we support the Wellcome Trust and we are anxious to ensure that all kinds of open access publishing models are considered, which is to some people code for let's keep hybrid journals going. And we're still waiting to see at the end of this month what the other agencies that have adopted Plan S will say. Are they going to actually say, we're going to bar hybrid journals? You publish an open access or you don't publish anywhere? Or are they going to introduce some of those flexible loopholes that the Wellcome Trust has introduced? But I, I mean, I could imagine that when this comes in by 2020, this could you know, quite, quite drastically change the, the face of scientific publishing. Yeah, it really, really could. Now, in another way, maybe it won't, because so far the number of agencies that have signed up to this plan is 15. This week, the Gates Foundation, the uh, American biomedical funder, also signed up. It, it already says it wants instant publication, but it hasn't yet said anything about hybrid. So overall, you know, those are some powerful funding agencies, but they only represent a small percentage, really, of all of the papers that are published in the world. So if America and China don't follow this, then basically we're left with, if you are a researcher funded by these agencies, you must publish open access, but all the other researchers don't have to. So it really will have to see how other agencies take this. Well, certainly something to keep an eye on there. But Richard, uh, let's move on to our second story today, and perhaps some rather disappointing news from Antarctica. Yeah, so it, this is about the ozone hole. It is, of course, shrinking, which is great, although this year, rather disappointingly, slightly larger than what we've measured in the past couple of years. Now, the concern here is not about this particular year's blip, but the wider concern is that there seem to be some rogue emissions of CFCs and other ozone-destroying chemicals, and we're not sure where they're coming from. 
and they are slowing down the rate at which the ozone hole is shrinking. Certainly CFCs were the sort of the poster chemical for sort of terrible ecological damage in the kind of 80s and 90s. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, they've been banned from fridges and what have you. So, I mean, where maybe are these sort of rogue emissions coming from? Well, we know that one of the places they may be coming from still now is China. Separate investigations earlier this year by the New York Times and by an advocacy organisation called the Environmental Investigation Agency, found that there are at least 18 Chinese factories still making or using a particular CFC called CFC-11. But they can't be contributing to the rise of these mysterious CFCs in the atmosphere right now because it can take decades for these chemicals like CFCs to make it high enough into the atmosphere to start causing problems. So these ones that are being made now then aren't necessarily the ones to blame for what's going on up in the Antarctic atmosphere, but it's ones from the past. Exactly. So it's a suggestion that um, either some of what's being made now is getting up there more quickly Uh, or that something more was being made in the 2000s that we don't know about, Uh, or perhaps researchers are wrong about how long these chemicals persist in the atmosphere. So it's all a bit of a a mystery. Yeah, I mean, it it does sound like a lot of a mystery. I mean, what happens next? How do we sort of uh, zoom in on on, on where these chemicals are coming from and and, and do something about it? Well, we are waiting for the Montreal Protocol's uh, panel that will reassess things like how much CFC is leaking from old refrigerators, and they issue a report every four years. Uh, And we talk to scientists who are involved in that, and they are reviewing all of their measurements of CFCs taken in Japan and South Korea and China to see if they can figure out where the extra emissions are coming from. And they're also trying to uh, get into uh, near-alleged sources in East Asia also to get more measurements. And basically, if you can pinpoint where the emissions are coming from, that will help you narrow down that one bit of uncertainty uh, in the whole puzzle. Well, thank you, Richard. And listeners, that's it for this week's show. As always, you can find even more of the latest science news over at nature.com slash news. And if you like your science delivered in video form, check out our YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Our latest video features a transforming problem-solving modular robot. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com.